Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up on the program today, we're going to talk a little bit more about that update from the Canucks. Now even more players and people associated with the team testing positive for COVID-19 and confirmation that a variant is involved with that outbreak. Richard Zussman is going to join us around 12.15 today talking a little bit more about that. Also coming up on the program, more on that memorandum of understanding having to do with homelessness people, the camp in Strathcona Park, will it actually make a difference? And what about all of the other people who don't have housing in the city of Vancouver? What happens with the with them? We're going to talk about that in the second hour of the program. And speaking of homeless, tensions once again rising in Penticton. The mayor is joining us to bring us the very latest on that as well. First up, though, we know that variants are a concern. They are called variants of concern. And that was something that was discussed yesterday at the health briefing with Dr. Bonnie Henry and the health minister. Unpredictable. On March 23rd, there were 171 active variant cases in the province. Since then, the cases have gone up and down. Just look at the past two days from 588 to 266 active variants. Unnecessary travel and social gatherings are fueling the fire for the variants of concern transmission as well. But we all have the ability to slow that down. The two most common, more transmissible strains are the B117 from the UK and the P1 from Brazil. Let's bring in Caroline Colain, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics, mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Thanks for coming back on the show. Good afternoon. I know you don't have the numbers, the the health information that Dr. Bonnie goes on when she, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, when she does the, the news conference and when we hear from the health minister. But based on your modeling, what are we looking at in BC when it comes to these variants that can spread even faster? Yeah, so that's exactly right. They, they look like they're more transmissible, especially B117. We have really strong data about that and uh, emerging data for P1 as well. Um, and so what that means is that while we were kind of flat before holding steady and with an R of one, you could think of it that way. Then if you have something more transmissible, it's going to be more than one and it will start growing exponentially unless we you know, take very specific actions to do something about it. I think we're probably at sort of 50 percent uh, VOC right now in B.C. That doesn't mean that they will detect all of those because they don't they can't probably sequence every single case. And also it takes longer to probe what variant a case might be if it is one. And so there's a bit of a lag. So when you see those reported numbers, it's not always stated, you know, all the information about, you know, we found 200 of how many tests did you look for variants? Did you look in 400 or in 3,000? Because that would make a big difference. And is that why there's such a difference when we look at the numbers that uh, the officials are giving us at those news conferences, comparing it to the numbers or the what you're saying, what other, uh, what other um, experts are saying who have also done modeling and are looking at these numbers? There's a huge discrepancy in those numbers. Yeah, that's right. I think that's down to that if they report the number of confirmed variant cases through sequencing, but they haven't sequenced all of the total cases, then the number they'll find when they confirm is the denominator for that is the portion they actually tested. And if they don't know that, then we can't sort of lift those numbers. What we've seen, you know, from going from 1% to 10% to 20% to 40%, 
Um, there's kind of a standard timeline that B117 has followed in many, many jurisdictions as it rises in frequency because it's more transmissible than the other COVID. So even just based on that and looking at kind of 1% in early February and reading some of the, the numbers that we have seen, um, I would I would look I would say it's probably looking like 50 ish percent now and likely to become predominant uh, over the coming few weeks. You mentioned the measures that we're taking now. So if we're seeing that kind of spread, 50%, if it's reached the 50% mark now, what does that mean then as far as if we don't take more measures or we aren't working harder or at least maybe using the measures that are in place now to try and stop the spread? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, it means rises in cases and rising transmission. And I think this is one reason that it's important for the public to have this information because, as Dr. Henry noted, we do get to choose, in a way, what happens with transmission. Not everyone. Some people have to go to work, and we have to respect that, and there are workplace contacts and outbreaks. But many people do choose their risk behavior, and I think knowing that these variants have a higher transmissibility, that means knowing that when you have those contacts, you're taking more of a risk uh, to you and the people around you than you were before. And it's going to mean that this is harder to control than the COVID that we've been used to up until now. And you kind of touched on this, but timeline wise, then, if nothing changes and we continue to see this spread, is it something that that would then uh, the more it spreads, kind of the faster it gets, it gains momentum? That's right. I mean, that's kind of the nature of exponential growth. It looks faster and faster, but it has a constant doubling time. What you see is that, you know, the variants were low in number. And so the overall cases were not growing at you know, some doubling time that was like the VOC, but because the VOCs were, were, you know, maybe there were 10 cases and then 20 and then 40 and then 80. But if there were 500 overall, those 10 or 20 don't add a lot. Whereas now we'll start to see that rate looking higher because we'll see more of the cases being because of variants of concern. So it will look like faster growth if we don't do anything. I think we probably will do things, you know, we can run models that project what happens if we don't change our behavior, but we will. You know, we've always, and we see this with the restaurants, once the cases get high, about 1,000 a day, or once there's pressure on the hospitals across Canada, then we, then we use our distancing measures to, to change that. Um, I hope that we will also be continuing to be as proactive as we have been in BC with, with vaccination and that vaccination will help us in this race. It's, it's not going to change in the next week or two, but I hope that over the coming weeks, we will make a huge dent by vaccinating people at risk of transmission. And what about the the issue as well with the P1 variant and, and with people being able to get COVID again in that if you've had COVID-19 and maybe you have some natural immunity to the virus, does that mean anything when you're dealing with exposure to a variant? Yeah, I think that's important and it you know worries me about P1, not so much for BC today because most of us in Canada have not had COVID. So there's not a lot of advantage that a virus has for being able to reinfect people who've already been infected. So few of us have been infected. I think the risk is more, you know, we don't have data on P1 and how it bumps up against vaccinated individuals. We're going to find out uh, in the world, not just in BC, uh, unfortunately, over the coming months. But if it also is better at reinfecting those who are vaccinated, that'll be a problem. And that'll be a problem we won't see first in B.C. Because in B.C. Our, and in Canada, our vaccination is slower than it is in other places. It's a problem they're likely to see sooner in places like the U.S. or the U.K. or Israel that have larger vaccinated populations. 
I hope we don't wait to see if it's a problem in B.C. By the time we see it, it being a problem here, it'll be a problem here. It would be better to prevent it and, and see it first uh, from data from other jurisdictions. But I think we will know in coming months. It's a concern about reinfection more for vaccination than for people who've already had COVID here in B.C. Uh, do you think it would help then if we got the information faster as far as and I know it takes longer to sequence and to figure out the variants, but would it make a difference, do you think, if we did get that information faster and used more things like rapid testing and increased testing? I think it would make a difference. Uh, I'll talk first about the data faster. You know, it's easy for someone like me who's a modeler to say, oh, yes, yes, other people should do work and spend money and, and provide data for people like me. I'm kind of a consumer of data. But I do think the value, you know, in the public knowing what kinds of COVID are circulating in B.C. and what the risks are is important because people make decisions based on their perceptions of risk. So they might be happier to support public health guidelines if they know exactly why those guidelines are in place and the variants are part of that story. Um, and then you asked about, uh, sorry, I've lost the way. The, the testing. There's been, there's been concern the about BC not testing a, as yeah. much as a lot of other places. Do you think that would make a difference if they ramp that up? Yeah, I think ramping up rapid testing in particular, you know, if you, Barcelona had a huge concert, they had everybody take a test first, and you can, you can reopen a lot more if you can support it with rapid testing. Even if they're not as perfect as the gold standard test, I think what they're finding in many places is that a slightly less gold standard test, but used really frequently can still have a huge impact. So that's something, if we don't want to keep using lockdowns and shutdowns as our main measure, that's something we could be exploring more. All right, Caroline Colain, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, an update earlier today from the Vancouver Canucks announcing that as of today, 25 individuals have tested positive and the source infection of this COVID-19 outbreak is confirmed a variant. Among the 25 positive cases, 21 players, three players from the taxi squad, four members of staff, one additional player is considered a close contact. Well, Richard Zussman is joining me now on the line, a global news journalist. He is based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. You asked, or, or I know Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked about this yesterday at the news conference. What did we find out at that point? Yeah, so it was me. And uh, <laughs> I asked about uh, whether it was connected to the P1 Brazilian variant. And Dr. Henry said uh, that she was not aware uh, that the outbreak involving the Canucks uh, was linked uh, to P1. That's the Brazilian variant that we know was connected uh, to some of the outbreaks in Whistler. Uh, we know that it is leading to uh, driving cases in the Vancouver Coastal Health region, uh, which is where Rogers Arena is and where uh, many of the Canucks uh, live. Uh, but we uh, do not know, based on what Dr. Henry told us yesterday, uh, whether there is a connection. Uh, she also uh, went on to say uh, in answering my question uh, that this outbreak shows uh, how quickly COVID-19 uh, can spread even among people uh, who are healthy, even among people who are frequently tested. 
uh, and even among those who are working in situations where there are strict uh, COVID-19 protocols in place. So, you know, just to quote her yesterday, this is a reminder to all of us, this virus spreads very easily. It spreads easily in young people and young people can have some very serious illness sometimes. Uh, so if, we'll give Dr. Bonnie Henry the benefit of the doubt that maybe she hadn't been given this updated information when you asked her about yeah. this yesterday, but we now know from the Canucks themselves, the, the new statement today says, yes, uh, it was the P1 variant. Uh, so any idea then, I'm, I'm guessing she will be asked about this again or the health minister will be asked about this again um i guess we still don't know that the source as in who the source was uh, who was the first to get the infection where the infection came from and, and any more information like that yeah so it's important to note that the statement from the canucks uh, is vague on which variant is involved and we know though that there is a confirmed variant we also know that the p1 variant is uh, spreading in Vancouver Coastal Health, where the B117 variant, the UK variant, is spreading uh, in Fraser Health mainly. If Dr. Henry did know, though, yesterday about the details, she very easily could have answered my question saying, yes, we know it's a variant case, but we don't know which variant it is. Again, we don't know what information the BCCDC is sharing, uh, but it does raise concerns around, you know, what sort of spread this variant uh, can lead to, right? Like this is a situation where, and I think um, most of the, the understanding based on the timeline is that uh, Adam Godet, uh, forward for the Canucks, was the first player to test positive. Uh, it is unclear, uh, based on the Canucks statement, where uh, that virus may have been acquired. What we can read from the statement is that we are aware that the virus then spread through close contacts as a team. And uh, slowly we have seen more and more people added to that list. You know, as of yesterday, it was, uh, I think, 17 or 18 players. It's up to 21. Again, it depends how you count that taxi squad, which is, you know, not a player that's on the full-time roster, but is somebody that is still, you know, training with the Canucks. And so... It is unclear exactly how those all how quickly all those processions took place because it's been a week now uh, since the Canucks canceled practice and postponed four games and it's still very unclear how this team is going to be able uh, to finish up you know a lot of these games that are scheduled again the NHL is expecting the Canucks to finish the schedule Jill but we don't have any firm timelines on when those games are expected uh, to be played. All right. So we'll be waiting uh, for updates on that. Richard, uh, looking forward to your uh, piece on the Global News tonight as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Joe. My pleasure. All right. That is Richard Zussman, Global News journalist based in the legisl- at the legislature based uh, in Victoria. Thanks for being with us. So we're going to talk a little bit more now about what is happening in Surrey and particularly in the Surrey School District. You might have heard Rani Sangara, the director of the Surrey District Parents Advisory Council, earlier today speaking on Mornings with Simi, uh, talking about how some parents have already taken their kids out of the school system, uh, calling on the need for a circuit break, uh, saying that that is happening and there needs to be more supports in place uh, for people who are staying at home home. Uh, Let's check in now with Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Matt, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, what are you seeing right now as far as kind of the mood in Surrey schools and what's happening with COVID-19 cases? There's still a great mood of unease, I would say, because our numbers are very high. Both we're seeing province-wide the number of reported cases, but also what's happening at a number of schools where there are a lot of classes self-isolating, a lot of cases showing up. So even though there have been vaccinations in Surrey School District, those aren't effective yet, and people are also concerned for students getting sick too. When we hear from the parents' advisory councils or, or talking about a circuit breaker, what does that mean to you, or what do you think that would look like? I, I think what they have in mind is shifting doing what some school districts in Ontario have done, like in Toronto and Peel, which is closing schools and shifting to remote instruction for a period of time to avoid any contacts in the school. And the, the plan that, was, that we're in the middle of contemplates that that's one possible measure that could be taken. There's five stages. We're at stage two, and we have been all year. And the big frustration we have is that there's no sense of any plan at the provincial level for when we might move into a different stage. It seems to be, don't worry, everything's fine. We're just going to keep on going the way we are. And do you think, is there a, not a magic number, but is there a number of cases or a number of classes in, in isolation or quarantine that you've been told or that would actually move it to a different stage? We've never been given any, any indication that it ever would move. Uh, certainly everything Dr. Dr. Henry suge- says suggests that they really do not want to close schools at any cost. And, that, and that's a real concern because I think there has to be a, be a point where that becomes the measure that's necessary. Uh, it doesn't have to be the whole province. It could be particular schools, particular districts. But we need to be able to have a plan that's nimble enough to respond to such hot spots like that. And right so far, that's not been what we've been seeing. Uh, when you talk about what's happening uh, in Toronto and Peel, we've been looking at that as well. And certainly, I, I mean, I think people can understand why that move was taken. But there's also been a huge um, outcry, really, from parents who were caught a bit off guard and who now have to figure out childcare, have to figure out uh, how to do if they're going to do try and do distance or online learning, and and very difficult. Uh, I would imagine if we did do that model here, uh, there would be the same reaction, at least from some parents, so who wouldn't quite know what to do with that. Oh, I think so. I mean, there's no doubt that it's highly disruptive to parents and families. It's also disruptive if a school, if a school has to shut down, which we've seen happen in a number of places, or if the whole family has to self-isolate, say, because uh, their child becomes po- positive with COVID. So I, I'm not saying that we need to shut the schools down. What I am saying is that we need to actually have a sense that there is a plan for at what point would we reach that that stage. And right now, I don't get any sense that they've really decided and that's a bit disconcerting. Uh, How concerned are you as well that we're dealing right now really with the numbers uh, that are reflective of the spring break and could continue to see uh, the higher cases especially with the variants and then the variant uh, the the B117 variant which we've seen in Fraser Health. Uh, How concerned are you that it is perhaps the actions that were taken on spring break that are causing this? Uh, That's always a concern because it's just an unknown in terms of what families are doing. Are they traveling? Are they gathering? But it's also, it's not as though I'm going to have to respectfully disagree when the public health officer says children are safer in schools. I don't think we've seen data that actually shows that. I'm not saying it's true or not, but the, the lack of data transparency has been really concerning because we're having tons of exposures and self isolations before spring break. So it's not as though uh, I, I think it could make a difference, but the current situation is also very precarious, I think, given the number of cases in the community.
Uh, and I, and I wonder too, I mean, the argument can be made that that statement has to do a lot more with mental health for students and, and that students, uh, the, the, the need for so many students to be in school and where they thrive in school and simply cannot do that if they're at home. Uh, that's one of the things that has to be balanced and, and it has to be balanced against the safety of students in school. And because a lot of students are saying they don't feel safe in school either. So it's not as though, oh, as long as they're in school, don't worry about the mental health because they, they're living under the specter of COVID. They don't want their relatives to get sick or to bring something home. So uh, these things all have to be measured and also the safety of people who are working in the schools, which I think has been a neglected factor. Uh, do you have an idea at this point how many teachers uh, in the Surrey uh, School District uh, have uh, have been have contracted COVID-19 or have been off because of that? I don't have that number available, no. Uh, we've certainly, we definitely have had a fair number and we've had provincial level the reports of teachers being the second highest occupational group uh, after healthcare workers in terms of people with successful work safe claims for COVID that they contracted at work. Uh, has has anything changed or have you got a sense of change since uh, the more stringent mask rules were brought in? Uh, some change. Oh, I mean, we're hearing about some pushback from parents who are asserting that their children should have a medical exem- exemption. So that's, there's, been, there's been issues with that. We're also hearing from teachers of uh, students who are kindergarten to grade three that they would re- really wish it were mandatory for them as well. Because they say even younger students are fully capable of wearing masks, and they really should be. But right now, it's just encouraged rather than required. Uh, So what do you do at this point as far as uh, I know the the parents' advisory councils, again, are are asking for this and certainly reaching out for this. So what do you do as teachers? Well, I mean, what teachers do is they show up at work and they do their best for their students and to try to keep themselves and everyone else safe. Uh, I mean, we, we advocate for stricter measures still because really we don't, in reality, we don't want schools to shut down. We know it's better for everyone if they can, but we, they need to be able to do so in a safe way. Uh, and I know that the school district and Fraser Health are also very concerned about the situation. And they, they've been advocating for particular measures for Surrey to deal with the particularly severe situation we have. Well, yesterday we learned about a new agreement, a memorandum of understanding involving the B.C. government, the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver Park Board. The goal is to end the homeless camp at Strathcona Park and also prevent similar encampments in the future. So all three levels of government signed on to this. The goal, again, is what we had already been told to shut down the Strathcona camp by April 30th. Uh, A bit of clarification, if you're asking what's new in the memorandum, uh, clarification on which role each group is taking, the province, the city and the park board. But other than that, not a whole lot of new information in that, uh, simply reinforcing what had already been announced. Well, earlier today on Global News, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart was asked about the part about preventing similar encampments in the future. How does this a memorandum. How does this agreement, how does this do anything to stop camps from popping up again? If we uh, see an encampment start to develop, uh, the province would immediately make sure that uh, there's enough spaces to house those people. And then the park board would exercise their authority within that jurisdiction. What the city does is essentially uh, support these uh, support these actions uh, by making sure, you know, securing city land, uh, making sure that the housing is getting built. And then uh, use it. we have homeless outreach teams that, that help connect folks to uh, to the new housing. 
So that was Mayor Kennedy Stewart this morning speaking with Global News. He was answering the question of how do you stop tent cities from starting up again, from people pitching tents, from homeless people moving into parks after people in current encampments have been housed. And joining me to talk more about this is Anna Cooper, a staff lawyer with the Pivot Legal Society. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Do you think it is possible as far as even if housing is found for every person, say every person who is homeless in Strathcona Park right now, uh, is it possible to stop more camps from setting up? Is it possible to actually fix this problem? So I think it is possible to fix this problem by providing sufficient long-term rights-protected adequate housing that actually meets people's needs. And to that extent, you know, I agree with the government actors involved that the answer here is housing. Um, what isn't possible is to prevent encampments by the end of April with zero commitment from any of the actors involved, including in their MOU, to actually having sufficient housing for the homeless people throughout Vancouver at this time. And also where the housing they're providing will not be meeting people's needs on many levels. Uh, are you talking about uh, when the city purchases hotels or that kind of housing? Yeah, so there's a few different problems. Um, to the extent that people are forced into shelters, um, obviously shelters don't meet people's needs on many levels. Shelters are not housing. Um, but even housing itself, uh, what the government keeps refusing to acknowledge in these conversations is that a lot of the low-income housing in this city and across the province is woefully inadequate. Um, it's rights violating. People have no tenancy protections. Uh, people can't have guests, can't have their kids. There's no way to engage in family reunification. People can't have their pets. They don't have substance use support. Uh, there's broken washrooms. There's cockroaches. There's a ton of problems with the existing low-income housing stock. And we have to reckon with that as well. It's not just a number of units. It's a number of proper units that actually meet people's needs. So does it come down to cost then, do you think, in that the actual solution, the way to fix this, is a costly one? I think that it may be costly up front, but it is not costly long term. The reality is that there's plenty of research at this point that shows that housing first approaches to homelessness are not fundamentally more expensive because what we're doing right now is really expensive. You know, to bring this to the current movements around defunding police, police are extremely expensive. Any response to what is really at its core an issue of poverty that is dealt with primarily through enforcement is going to be dealt with in an extremely costly way. Uh, When people are outside, they're also far more likely to have various health issues, and then they need to rely on the health system. They need to rely on other emergency services. What we're doing right now isn't cheap. It's just oppressive and is comes from a long history of colonization, a very classist way of thinking of people who are unhoused. Is there the issue, though, too, as well, even if you were to find uh, housing that was appropriate and housing that uh, that gave people or, or, or provided people uh, with housing that was suitable, uh, can you ever have enough? Does it not then just perpetuate more people come and more people want to, to, to get that housing as well? You know, it's interesting because this is a concern that every community thinks is unique to their community. But as someone who has worked in the issue of the rights of unhoused people for years now, I can say that I hear that concern of everyone is coming here from communities all across this country. 
Um, the fundamental denial is that while there may be um, a slight increase in the number of folks who are drawn to uh, urban cores on the West Coast, homelessness is a rising issue across the country. It, it's not a local issue. We're not uh, attracting all the homeless people from across this nation. Um, it's that every level of government, from municipal to provincial to federal, has fundamentally failed to invest in and protect housing for decades. And we are now witnessing the outcome of that on a nationwide level. So yes, in order to solve this problem, all three levels of government have to be involved. But it's not a local issue. What about the issue of we focus so much on Strathcona Park because there is the encampment there and uh, everything that's that's gone with that? What about the issue of the fact or the fact that that's not the only place where there are homeless people? There are homeless people. There are tents. Uh, there are people living on the streets in many other neighborhoods uh, in Vancouver, uh, Metro Vancouver. Uh, do you think the memorandum of understanding does it even begin to address that? No, it doesn't. And I think it's really telling that the memorandum is so focused on this specific tent city. Because when I read this memorandum and I read the media releases coming out from various levels of government, it's clear that the main focus of these communications is to assure property holders that they will not need to be inflicted by visible manifestations of homelessness. This is not a memorandum actually focused on caring for people. Because if you spoke to people who are currently homeless, they would not be calling for a zero tent city policy because they would tell you that they are not safer when they are displaced every single day and not allowed to build communities while they are currently unhoused. Um, policies that are going to work are going to be policies led by people who are currently in house speaking to what keeps them safest in this moment. And for some people, that's going to be being in tent cities. And for other people, that's going to be sheltering in other locations where they're best able to meet their needs while government gets its act together. What about the concerns, though, of when people are living in tent cities, and we have seen this at Strathcona, is that we're talking about some very vulnerable members of the community that are taken advantage of. There are also people in that tent city who aren't homeless, who are there specifically to prey on those who are. There are a lot of issues with people who are forced to live outside and to depend on criminalized economies being subject to violence and being vulnerable. But those issues have nothing to do with tent cities themselves. The issues that we see in tent cities exist across the board when people are in situations of extreme poverty and vulnerability. The answer to that is not disassembling existing communities. It's providing people the support they need to move indoors and take care of themselves, but not just in one location. I think the reason we so often think that tent cities are these kind of hotbeds of crime or violence or vulnerability is because it is in the interest of government to portray them in that way. Uh, there is an intense focus on these spaces because there is such an indictment of government failure and the desire to document and publicize everything wrong with them to justify eviction is intense. And we see how that rolls out in media and in the public narrative, but it's not actually reflected in the reality of harm across the city of Vancouver. Right. But when we look at, and again, I'll use Strathcona as the example. I mean, we've seen people die in that camp. We've seen people severely injured who have been left for hours. Uh We've seen chop shops for bikes that are ongoing. Uh, We have seen a lot of crime. That's not something that's being made up. That's something that anybody that goes down there will see. Right. But what I'm questioning is not that there aren't harmful things happening in the camp. What I'm questioning is that the camp is causing those problems. 
I'm saying in any community that is devastated by poverty, colonization, um, by a criminalized and toxic drug supply, by a number of other issues, you are going to see some of these things take place. Those things take place across unhoused and and housed communities across the city. They are not specific to that location. What is specific to that location is an intense focus by media and government on covering every time that happens. Many, many unhoused people have suffered violence, have died, have gone through all kinds of harm this year, but they don't get covered in the same way if they're not in that tent city. What do you think would be a better approach then, as as the, a, a lot of attention was given, this memorandum of understanding was put out as, as a, big, a big kind of win yesterday. What do you think would work better or what would be a better approach? What the government needs to do is fundamentally invert its thinking. Right now, it is thinking about how do we, as quickly as possible, remove the most visible manifestations of homelessness from public spaces where they're making house people uncomfortable. And they need to actually center the people who are currently living outside in these conversations and say, what do you need now? What would help you take care of your needs now? What do you need to stay safe? The people on the ground have the answers. The fact that they weren't even consulted in this memorandum is extremely telling and is why we're going to continue to come up with solutions that will fail. All right, to Anna, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time for today, but thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, earlier today, Shelby Tom, one of our colleagues at Global Okanagan, tweeted out a photo of what appears to be feces on a sidewalk and says uh, alongside that photo, White Spot franchisee owner Al Mansfield is now apologizing after dumping a bucket of poop in front of the Main Street homeless shelter near his business. Shelter operators say he was caught on video surveillance and the incident was witnessed by staff and it was posted by a local resident, Susie Green, on Facebook as well. Uh, Shelby also tweeted out a comment from the CEO of the Penticton and District Society for Community Living, which operates the shelter. Tony Lang saying rhetoric on the issue of homelessness in our city has gone from public discourse to actions that are totally unacceptable. And uh, we understand now, and according to Shelby, uh, apparently uh, White Spot has now asked the franchisee, uh, the owner, Al Mansfield, to step back from day-to-day operations just for the time being at least. Well, joining us now to talk more about this and what's happening in Penticton is the mayor of Penticton, John Vasilaki. Thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thank you for having me. Greatly appreciate it. What is your response to what I just described and the fact that here we have a business owner who has gone and thrown feces on the sidewalk in front of the shelter? Um. I don't condone what happened. It's very, very unfortunate that it happened. City Council doesn't condone it. The the residents of Penticton don't condone it. Um, And we just wish it had never happened. It's unfortunate that a business person had to take this action. Um, Like I said, it wasn't the right thing to do. There's better ways to uh, to put your complaints forward than to do the actions that uh, he did at the present time. Uh, do you know Al Mansfield? Yes, I do. Uh, so were you surprised to, to hear that this had happened? Very uh, surprised. Uh, he, he's a, a gentleman. He's, he's, um, I've spoken to him many times. He's complained to me many times with what's happening uh, to his business um, and the whole neighborhood. 
neighborhood. As a matter of fact, other businesses have sent me many emails, phone calls, and all that concerning um, what they're going through and the frustration that they're going through um, for the past uh, year, year and a half to two years now. Um, you know, it's what happens is unacceptable. Um, and I just hope it, it doesn't happen again by anyone. Uh, how do you think things have got to this point where a business owner, uh, like you said, somebody that you, you know, uh, goes to the steps of doing something like this, something that, that's absolutely horrible? I think we can all agree that no matter what your concern is or what your frustration is, doing something like this, throwing feces on the sidewalk in front of a, a shelter yeah. is horrible. No, I agree with you 100%. But you've got to understand uh, what's happening in certain areas of the city um, where more security is necessary to, to patrol the areas to make sure that things like this don't happen on both sides, uh, whether it's supportive housing uh, or the businesses that are causing problems or whatever the situation may be. Um, and, and that's what's lacking at the present time is, is that security that should be in those areas 24 hours a day, not just uh, uh, day, daytime hours, but uh, it has to be 24 hours in, in order to get rid of this frustration uh, that certain parts of the community are having. Uh, so what is actually happening then that is is apparently driving local business owners and adjacent business owners to the brink of, of doing something like this? It, it's all uh, the, the bad behavior uh, and all the crime that's happening, the break-ins, uh, breaking of windows, uh, feces all over the place, uh, like um, Al has uh, brought forward, he brought it out into the open. Um, I mean, it's happening everywhere in town. That's not the only location that we're having problems. We're having them downtown. We're having them out on the south end of the city. It's it's a big problem, and unless um, BC Housing takes control of what's happening and put better management in place, it's this this kind of issues are going to be coming up all, all the time, not only in the city of Penticton, but in other communities uh, in British Columbia as well. Uh, we've talked a lot about the uh, shelter, the uh, BC Housing Shelter, and uh, the disagreement, uh, to put it lightly, that you have had with uh, David Eby. Uh, that shelter, we know, is staying open or will remain open, uh, despite your objection and the objection of some other members of council. Is that the main problem, though, or are there other issues in Penticton dealing with homelessness that, that need more attention? Well, that's one problem in that particular location where that one's situated in. But we've got uh, two or three others, uh, other locations that are exactly the same, if not worse, uh, than what's happening uh, down at, at the Victory Church um, emergency shelter. And by the way, it was supposed to be an emergency shelter for six months from the 1st of November to the 31st of March. That's the agreement that we had with BC Housing, and they went back on that agreement by coming to us at the 11th hour um, to extend it for a full year without a plan in place as to what's going to happen, what is the future uh, the emergency shelters in Penticton are going to be. And unless we they sit down seriously with our staff 
and communicate as to what's going to happen in the future in Penticton and other communities in the province. This situation won't get any better. It's going to be getting worse. Um, and we need wraparound services in all the locations that they're putting uh, in our communities. And those wraparound services just aren't there. And that's what we're asking for, wraparound services and a permanent permanent locations long term, not short term. And when you say that, though, do you think there is the the appetite in the city uh, to have permanent solutions, uh, be it uh, modular housing like we've seen in some other cities or uh, the purchase of hotels, although I'm not sure that's even an option uh, in Penticton? What kind of what kind of permanent services do you think that people in Penticton would be okay with? Um, You know, there's there's three type of uh, uh, type uh, homes that are required, in my opinion. One is to have a dry location. Uh, the, the other one is to, to have a location for uh, mental issues, uh, patients. Um, and the other one is addictions. But you can't put all three of those uh, uh, folks in, in the same building. It's just impossible to make things better for them. If all three of them in the, are in the same location, to me, it just doesn't make sense. You have to have a location for each one in order to, to take care of, of the issues that they have. What, whatever those issues are and how long they've had them, the province has to, uh, to take steps uh, to take care of those folks. Do you think at all or do you fear at all that your very vocal and public fight with David Eby, has it led to people thinking that it's, that it's okay to turn their backs on homeless or to treat them in the way that we saw the franchise owner of the White Spot do? And, and, and even if you, if you, I know he's apologized and it was out of an abundance of frustration, but has it led to a kind of an attitude or, or a climate in Penticton where, where people have turned on the homeless? Absolutely not. I don't believe that that has ever taken place here. Uh, we're trying to do the best we can uh, for those folks because I'm I'm the person that knows how they feel and uh, and where they're coming from. Um, and you, you know, um, there there are certain things that have to be done in order to alleviate the problems we're having. The city of Penticton has done more for homeless people per capita than any other community in the interior of British Columbia. And BC Housing wants to continue to make it, uh, to put even more pressure on the city of Penticton and its citizens to build more of those facilities here. When there are so many other communities in the area that don't have any, we're the only community in the interior of BC, south of Kelowna, that has supportive housing at at all. We're the only ones. And it's 140 per capita, 143 of our residents per um, homeless bed in the city of Penticton. And we have the most, we've done the most of any other uh, uh, um, uh, um, municipality uh, in the interior of BC. Kelowna is the next one, which is uh, 390 some odd uh, per capita. Um, for every 390 uh, residents, they have one bed. Uh, Kamloops or Vernon has 500 residents per bed. 
Kamloops, uh, they're just as bad as we are, but we've, we've uh, done the, the most. Um, so when people say that we're turning our back on the homeless, it's absolutely not true. We've done more than any other municipality in, in the interior of British Columbia. Uh, do you think Al Mansfield should face any kind of punishment for what he did? Um, you know, it's, for, it's not for me to say. Uh, it's up to the, the public to demand what uh, should happen. Um, perhaps the, the, the authorities, but I, I'm not at, the, at this point. I'm, I'm not going to make any comment on that one. All right. Uh, Mayor Vasilaki, I always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us to talk more about this. Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for being with us. Well, in September of 2017, I was assigned to do a story. I was working at Global BC, got the call from the assignment desk saying, Jill, we want you to do a story about this basketball coach. It seems he's uh, being criticized for some of his techniques on the court. Some people are finding him a little bit too gruff. You could say, go find him, track him down, see if he'll do an interview and talk more about this. So I did, got a phone number, called him up. It was around nine in the morning, I would say. Uh, He answered the phone and I said, hello, it's Jill Bennett, Global News. Hope I'm not waking you up. And he started yelling at me that, in fact, I had woken him up and that was not okay. Uh, He then agreed to do the interview and to talk about this. And that is how I met Rich Golay. And just before we bring my next guest on, I want to play for you uh, this story. This was the story I filed later that day about this basketball coach. Evan! You stopped playing the guy and he went around you! For 53 years, Rich Golay has used this tough approach and it's worked. The decorated, well-respected basketball coach has taken teams all the way to becoming provincial champs several times. Somehow on the court, I'm a fiery, in-your-face, loud, yelling coach. When it's dead, you got to get back on the guy. Goulet had retired from teaching but continued volunteering at Pitt Meadows Secondary, putting in countless hours and fundraising hundreds of thousands of dollars. In July, he was told to resign his volunteer position after complaints were made by some unidentified parents. The complaints are issues with players and they said I was demeaning and if you think that telling them how to improve from being where they are is demeaning, uh, then, you know, that's... That's that. Goulet says he was also accused of nudging a player who was laughing because the team was losing during a tournament in December. He left quietly, but the backlash has been anything but. Three of his former students, all who made it to the NBA, have taken to Twitter. Steve Nash telling his 2.6 million followers, lucky I got to play for Coach Goulet. Kelly Olenek learned a ton from Coach Goulet. And Robert Sacri calls him the great Goulet. What he was being accused of was what Rich has done for... 50 years, right? Several coaches at competing schools are so angry, they're planning to boycott future games with Pitt Meadows Secondary. We're not going to play. And people have said to me, you're like, what about the kids? And, and I said to them, what about Rich Goulet? He has worked with thousands of kids. The school board has issued a brief statement, but cites privacy concerns for the lack of details. As for the parents who complained to the board but said nothing to the coach? Yeah, I think they're cowards. And I think they were enabled to be cowards by the school administration. My guest now is Doug Plum, a Pitt Meadows Marauder Air Force basketball alumni. And Doug Plum joins me on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Um, so appreciate you coming on. Uh, we're talking about this because sadly, Coach Goulet has passed away. Uh, my condolences. I know he must have been quite the mentor to you. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I mean, not just myself. I think uh, that extends to not just 8,000, but many thousands of uh, people that he's worked with over you know 50 years he's been in the game. So there's a lot of people who are, uh, who are feeling it and, and are missing his, uh, his presence. So thank you. Uh, he really did touch so many lives and pushed so many people to become really great at the sport. And there is now a petition that your group has started up wanting to rename the gymnasium. How important is it to you to do that? Um, I mean, it, it's very important because I feel like, you know, you, you dedicate 50 years of your life to being a public servant and not taking a dollar. I think that, you know, that that in itself warrants uh, recognition, but just also the way that that relationship ended. Uh, as you touched on that clip that you played earlier, I think that it would go a long way, um, not just in honoring him and, and and his family, but also to to mend the relationship and, and the, the bond between the alumni uh, and the school because it's it's a very unique uh, program um, and what he created there is extremely unique and, and it was really special and I think that since that it has all happened um, the dismissal of, of, of Rich and how, how it happened um, there's been a huge gap there um, and people don't really want anything to do with the school and I think that taking the step to, to name the court after him would be a step in the right direction would help really mend that relationship and, and get everyone back on board. Have you had any response from the school district or the school about whether or not this is even possible? Um, we have. We actually just, my brother, Colin, um, who played for Rich as well, got an email back from the school district two days ago. And basically they're saying um, that it's not in their policy to name uh, facilities after um, any staff or any people. Um, and, and that's where it stands right now. And they said that it's up for, um, I guess they're reviewing it in, in 2022, 2023. And that's, that's essentially all we got and that they'd be willing to do a scholarship. And we're kind of sitting here. Uh, we, I actually shared that post on social media and uh, it had some people pretty enraged at the wording of it. And um, so now we're, we're kind of back at the drawing board in terms of what, what can we do? We're trying to find solutions um, to get it done. Cause I think that and many people out there that are you know, very influential in the community who have worked with Rich and seen the impact that he's had are on board as well. I think that it's a no brainer. Um, it's the very least that we could do. Right, because we're not talking about just anybody in the community. Like you said, we're talking about somebody here who devoted more than 50 years of his life to basketball and to coaching. Yeah, I mean, I'm not taking away anything. Every high school basketball coach in the province is is volunteer and don't want to take away any of the great work that they do. But not all contributions are equal. Um, and Rich was, I mean, before Rich got, got to Pitt Meadows, he was at STM before before he even got to Pitt Meadows. Pitt Meadows didn't even have a gymnasium. So not only did he build a program and build all these people throughout his coaching, but he actually also built the facility. He was instrumental in, in building it, in designing it, and fundraising to get the facility actually built. Um, and then, you t- you know, 40 years after that, we uh, – me, my brother, and my dad, um, we knew that this was going to happen. And the other day, we said, okay, how can we take this into our own hands a little bit and create some, some attention on social media? So we actually went there, and Goulet had a parking spot um, that he was, was known. Like, his, he drove this red pickup truck. He must have drove this thing for 20 years. He drove it anywhere. It was iconic and uh, symbolic of, of him and where, where he was going. Anyways, we uh, got some chalk, and we outlined a court, and we did a chalk basketball court on, on there, and we, we found a little toy red truck, and we put it on there and put a uh, – a stick in the ground said Goulet way posted a video and uh 
sent that out to the masses kind of to, to start to generate some attention. But yeah, I mean, just 50 years of, of public service and what this guy meant to the community. And not only was Goulet instrumental in building that basketball program, which I mean, I don't know how much you or the listeners know, but Pitt Meadows, the Pitt, but Pitt Meadows is a small town mm-hmm. and Pitt Meadows has become synonymous with Pitt Meadows Marauders basketball. Um, not only did he build the program, but he also kind of put the community on the map because every year he also launched this, not only were they winning provincial championships and they were having players go all over the place from this small town, um, but he was also bringing tourism dollars and bringing eyeballs to the community because he, he launched this, uh, just basically because he had so much clout in the community that he could kind of galvanize and he wasn't taking a dollar from anyone. So he was just truly trying to grow the game. He launched something called Pit Meadows Team Camp. Well, it grew to over 100 teams. So all these teams were coming to Pitt Meadows and then it had to spread actually to Maple Ridge and it was injecting tourism dollars. So like that alone, and he did this for 20 years, if not longer. So his, his impact transcends basketball. Um, and yeah, like you said, I think that myself and everyone that's really trying to push this, there's been a lot of people that are, that are very supportive um, and rightfully so are, are really trying to push to make this happen. We just feel like it's the right thing to do. What do you remember most about him as a coach? Well, I mean, if you look at him uh, on surface level, you remember that he was very, very fiery. Um, but in the best ways, he was demanding without being demeaning, which has kind of become cliche, people saying that. But he, he, was, he had it down to a fine art. He would, never, he would never attack you as an individual. He would attack your action. And sometimes in game, you know, you wouldn't like that. But he would, he would make sure that he was pushing the right principles on kids. The, the, the importance of hard work, the importance of perseverance, the importance of being a good person, of being altruistic, all these things which are so critical to be, not just becoming a good athlete, but becoming good at anything that you want to do. Um, and he really created a bond, a brotherhood, and uh, kind of use sport as like a transcendent vehicle to, to establish all these relationships and just build these people. So I think that when I look back at Coach, I think about just how he always did everything. He did things the right way. And uh, he really stressed the importance of doing things the right way, even if no one was going to know it except yourself. Um, and that has stuck with me and everything that I do. I think about him often. Um, you know, I think, okay, is this something that, that Goulet would be proud of? And, and that's really helped me. And I know a lot of people that I talk to, they, they say the same thing. If you really got to know the man behind kind of the veil, um, that he was just a great, he was a great guy. And I would imagine, too, that's another reason why it's so important for you and the others who have already signed the petition and who are really behind doing this to make this his legacy, uh, not how he left with uh, some anonymous complaints that he was being too aggressive. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I just think it's the least that we could do. If you really knew, like I'm saying, this was such a good guy that he, he would have, he didn't take a dollar. He basically fundraised enough money. Um, in this program that it had bigger operating budgets than some colleges in the province. And he didn't take a dollar. Like it was, it was absolutely astounding. And he could have, and he could have used it for self notoriety, all this stuff, right. To boost himself. He never did. He worked in the shadows. He was relentless um, in terms of his, just his commitment to building community and building all these kids. And I I remember a story of uh, one of my brother's friends, actually at the time his family was going through financial hardship and Goulet didn't even want to, they, they went to Hawaii every year. So Goulet would take the team to Hawaii, they would fundraise. The kids would have to work, though. They would, he would never give anything for free. It was not like that. Like Kids understood the value of a dollar. We would be doing phone books at 5 a.m. on the back of his car, and he would take us. But uh, there was a year where um, one, of the, one of the teams, or one of the players, sorry, couldn't afford to go to Hawaii. His family was in a little bit of a tough spot, and Goulet didn't even want to touch the fundraising dollars because just how that could have been perceived as potentially, you know, recruiting a player or something and using school funds to pay for a, 
um, a trip to Hawaii. So he actually took it out of his personal bank account hmm. and paid the kid, and no one ever knew that. And hmm. I didn't even know that until after the fact. And we were having a uh, we were having a coffee, and he was telling us the story, and he brought a tear to his eye. And I was just like, wow, these are the kinds of things that when you really knew the man, the things that he was doing, and for him to get pushed out like he did, and then to you know for the school board to even have the audacity to push back and. I mean, I understand policy is policy, but there's certain people that are trailblazers and that you bend policy for those people because their their impact on the community is so profound that you just find a way to get it done. So this is not your average run-of-the-mill volunteer coach. And again, not to take anything away from any coaches anywhere, it's great. But what he did over the course of his duration at Pitt Meadows and beyond, not only for people like myself, but the community and, and the country, yeah, basketball, like Steve Nash talks about Goulet. Um, I, I think that it's just something that has to get done and you know, we're kind of, we're going to find a way. All right. So, well, Doug, we'll check back in with you, uh, I'm sure. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it.